everybody. Ray Lucchese here with Keith Townsend and Matt Lieb. This Greybeard on Storage episode was recorded December 22nd, 2020. This is our annual year-end podcast where we discuss the year's technology trends and what to look forward for the next year. Keith, what would you like to talk about today? You know what? Uh, let's talk about the biggest driver of technology, I think, for the year, which has been COVID-19 and the impacts on the industry. Yeah, yeah. This whole work from home transition kind of hit hit the world big time in, the, in a very short period of time. So uh, what do you think are the big aspects? Uh, certainly, we've seen a a massive growth in options in terms of, of VDI solutions, uh, little companies that are putting out solid products like, like Dijon and, uh, uh, you know, I could go on and on. Citrix has matured uh, m- massively in their solution. Of course, we've got VMware um, and, and NetApp is, is, has a whole ecosystem built around uh, around VMware as well. Um, anybody seen anything otherwise interesting in uh, in the VDI space? I think you know, I've, been, I've been sort of touting this remote work from home for about two decades. I thought it would, you know, within the last 15 years ago, I thought we'd, we'd see the end of office work and stuff like that. But in reality, it's persisted throughout the decade, I, I think it will come back to some extent, but it won't come back nearly as as uh, as much as it uh, once was. I'm sure. Yeah, and I think it's beyond just VDI or even office work. If you look at the macro impacts, you have. Uh, I think I was talking to one of. Uh, our industry peers and in, who's in New York, he was saying for the first time ever, he got offered a rent special in Midtown Manhattan. And this is for a, a, a apartment building he's already living in. So this wasn't to attract new, yeah, this wasn't to attract new renters, but this was to attract uh, uh, re-ups. Yeah, so the, and it's not just VDI that's kind of empowering the solution. I think VDI is a, a great starting point, but it's advanced solutions like Citrix Workspace and uh, VMware's Workspace One, refactoring applications to be web first, mobile apps, as well, the, the cloud too. I mean, to a large extent, the cloud has been been sitting in the sidelines. To some, well, sidelines probably not the right answer, but it's been out there for decades now and it's just it's really starting to take off you know a great indicator is that you know saw a headline the other day that amazon is a 10 billion dollar uh storage company so how much of that is driven by demand for as a result of COVID 19 and the ability to transform i think microsoft has said that they had customers do three years of transformation technology transformation in three months and it's not just work from home. It's also changing, shifting of business models. I mean, we, we consume and, and, and do stuff. We interact with our vendors much differently than we have in the past. Well, the whole Zoom thing, uh, you know, purchases, uh, electronic online purchasing and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. I was wondering if anybody still has a fax machine. 
I do, but it's disconnected. How's that? No, seriously. But it brings in other aspects. And I and I think it's really important to, to understand that with all of these additional attack vectors, we find ourselves in a place where security has to become a higher concern even than it was before. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, security exposure becomes a little bit, it certainly becomes larger as more and more people work from home, more and more corporate data is sitting on home computers than, than, than ever before. So there's whole, that whole aspect that, that COVID has sort of accelerated. Um, and I think we'll talk more about security later in the, in the show as well. But uh, yeah, you know, so I've been working from home for, for almost 20, not quite 20 years, but uh, for quite a while. I'm sure, Keith, you've been working from home for a long time as well. Um, it, it takes a different mindset to some extent to work from home than it does from, to work from the office. I think there's a whole psychological perspective there. I always felt I was a little bit, uh, yeah, it was a little bit lonelier existence working from home versus, you know, you could have lunch with your buds and stuff like that because they were all in the office and stuff. And on the other side of the equation, though, uh, don't you feel you can get more accomplished than than sitting in a uh, an office with a lot of shoulder taps and a lot of, uh, uh, oh, by the ways? You know, when I was in the office, we would spend like probably, oh, God, 50 or more percent of the day in meetings, just talking to people about what's going on and trying to keep everybody up to date and all that stuff. I find working from home, the, the meetings are much more, um, much more select and much more focused to some extent. I don't know. I mean, what do you guys think? Nah, I think uh, collectively I work more working from home than I do in the office. There's a lot less water cooler uh, time. There's a lot less, there's a lot less idle time. Uh, sure. I don't have as many in-person meetings. But I'm kind of strange. I didn't really mind in-person meetings that much. Uh, I like people. So, you know, uh, my son, who uh, who's working from home, uh, unlike me, he doesn't have his his uh, girlfriend works uh, retail. So she's not there during the day. So he is extremely depressed and and he's not suffering from depression, but he's depressed. You know, he's really bored. His, his workday is mundane. So it, it, it has impacted his productivity some as well. So I, you know, I think it's a mixed bag. I think uh, working, I, I, they're definitely not a one size fit all solution for com- companies. We'll have to figure out a balance coming out of this, but there, there's definitely for some people it's, it's great for other people. Eh, not so much. Yeah, I would think the guys like from Chicago and stuff that were commuting downtown or, or worst case might be San Francisco commuting to the Valley or something like that. That sort of thing was was uh, insanity. Right? Yeah, so you get a you get an hour or so each way back in your day. But don't you find that you're actually working those hours? It's not like it's a gift. It's a, if anything, it's more like a gift to the company. Yeah, I don't know if I'd say it's a gift. I'm, you know, I, of course, I'm my own company, so it doesn't matter if I give give my give give stuff to the company. It's all for my benefit. But um, I think I don't know. You know, I I start doing more structured things in my day. You know, I spark. You know, I start spending more time exercising in the morning before work. I spend more time. You know, just 
out in nature and stuff like that, just to try to get some, uh, some psychological benefit out of that motive. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know. It's just, I, I sort of structured my day. I, you know, in the old days when I was in the office, it was a very structured day, but it was meeting, 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 no meeting, 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 no meeting, you know, kind, kind of thing. So it was that structure versus, yeah, I work out in the morning. I have breakfast. I, you know, stuff like that. I, I don't know. It's, it's a different, I don't think I'm working any longer hours. I'm just being more productive with the hours that I'm working. Um, I would say in, in my case, it's both. Um, I'm, I'm surely working longer hours. Um, but in addition to that, the hours that I'm working are far more productive. And I own my own business. So Ray, you have a very good point that, uh, it's for my own benefit for the most part. Whereas how, if I'm ever an employee and if you ever consider hiring me, uh, I don't believe in returning more value than you provide from a monetary perspective. And I expect that of the people that I hire that, uh, work is a even trade of value. And if, uh, and one person should not be over, should not win in that value, uh, transaction than the other. So, if I get paid to deliver a product or service, I deliver that product and service. If I'm, if I work another hour or two or 12, uh, working for myself, then, you know, that's a different value prop. Yeah. 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 I think the other thing is that the, the whole office architecture of the cities, you know, cities are, you know, to a large extent, they're, they're major office centers, they're major apartment centers, and they're major retail centers to some extent to satisfy the apartment dwellers and the office dwellers. But the whole office world is going to be, a, a, I think, is going to change over time here. It seems to me that, you know, that's got to shrink. Well, in what way? You, you think the footprints of the offices are going to shrink and, and that yeah, more people? Yeah, I think the number of offices will shrink. The number of the need for office space will shrink. Whether you go to this, you know, I don't know what they call it, hot desking or whatever, whether you share desks for employees or not. Um, I, I always thought that you really don't need in this IT space as much on-premise people to do the work that needs to be done. Yeah, there needs to be some, but... Yeah, I don't know. Keith, you have a lab. You have a lot. Do you have people there all the time? No. Uh, the I have a data center engineer that comes up probably once a quarter. I only go into the office a couple of times a month. I actually have a office space down there, shared office space down there. I only go in a couple of months. My team uh, is completely virtual, so... Yeah, there's not a whole lot of need. I, I will say there is something to be said about having a permanent space, whether that's in your home office or in the office. I did the whole hot office share thing when I was at PwC uh, because we were only in the office one day a week at best. And it's not a great experience. Like it's it, 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 it did not encourage me to go into the office. Matter of fact, I avoided the office because I don't know. I didn't ever know if I was going to be able to get a desk or not. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. So you'd think a reservation program would help that or something like that. Yeah. And it doesn't, people don't respect it. I gotcha. uh, It's kind of like, you know, the people who work in the, because you still had some people who work there like Monday through Friday and they just, they just stay at the same desk. 
and ignore the reservation system. So I reserve a desk, go in there, you know, there's a, I go to the desk that I thought I had reserved and there's pictures of somebody's kids there. And, you know, it just, it, people culturally, I don't know if we're ready for that culturally. Yeah. Well, I think it's coming, <laughs> but I don't know. Huh. You know, I did some lab work for for a customer this year, and normally it would be, you know, I would either have a lab here or I'd have a, I'd be renting a lab space in the area. It was completely remote, hundred percent remote. I mean, it was on the East Coast someplace, uh, and I was in you know mountains area, and it worked like it worked like a champ. There was really no reason for me to be there. So, yeah. unless you need to uh, physically fix or or install equipment, there is no need to be on site. Right, 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 right. All right. Well, I think we've, uh, the COVID thing is going to be with us for another year or so at least. And I'm sure we'll have more insight as, as time goes on. But uh, the next thing I thought was technologically interesting was uh, this whole, uh, and VMware kind of, on their VMworld talked about the DPU as being something they were going to, uh, they were going to port ESX two and and uh, you know they were developing support for it throughout their their uh, their VMware solutions and stuff like that, but this whole smart NICs DPU ARM thing is is uh, really emerged over the last couple of years. I would say very intriguing. You know, we we talked to the Mellanox folks, uh, you and I did Ray on one of our podcasts and. Right. I went back and listened to it recently again, and I, I really find it to be incredibly intriguing what Mellanox is, is able to establish actually on the NIC itself and how they're isolating specific types of traffic and even more specifically types of transactions against that traffic on those NICs. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. uh, certainly Mellanox has been um, a, it's a groundbreaker in terms of networking before surely InfiniBand is uh, is a perfect example of that. Yeah. And then if you look at kind of this whole system grown up is AWS Nitro, they've, they've been doing it for a few years. So they take the same DPU across several instance types, and then they can take that DPU and have it deployed for specific things. So, so you know, uh, increasing speed of encryption, uh, encryption, encrypting data in transit, uh, storage services. So, you know, they might have a set of uh, BYOD type storage arrays, and they just built that functionality, not in a hypervisor, but in the DPU and the smart NIC itself. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's nice to see companies like VMware taking these cloud scale uh, approaches and making them consumable for the average enterprise where we just won't see it. I thought that we would see it in the form of seeing ESXi running on a smart NIC and the reality was, no, it's not ESXi running on the smart NIC, but it's extending the hypervisor functions out to the smart NIC. So uh, NSX code running on a smart NIC as opposed to having ESXi itself run on and VMs running on the smart NIC. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it seemed like they're, they're moving some of the security stuff out there. They're moving all the data processing stuff out there. 
Yeah, I, it seemed like Pat really said he was going to port VMware's ESXi to, to to run on the DPU, but that may be a a long term vision rather than a short term <laughs> goal. I'd say, you know. Now I talked to them, and that's not even that's not the that's not the idea any, anymore. The idea isn't to have ESXi running on the smart NIC. The idea is to be able to tackle long term for VMware specifically. The massive opportunity is to telco space. So taking NSX and having NSX basically run on a smart NIC and virtualizing the network functions, so you can have something that has the power footprint of an Intel Nook, but this super deep power to process uh, uh, networking functions out at the 5G edge, that's the dream. Uh, and running ESXi on that is not kind of, they figured out that running ESXi on that is not the approach. The approach is to have like a single version of ESXi uh, across, you know, your minimum three node cluster and then extend that functionality to, to agents or smart NICs downstream, which is much more appealing to telcos from a licensing perspective because licensing ESXi and telco has been the problem for VMware. So smart NICs is just disrupting a lot of how we've approached delivering data center type technologies, especially in the telco space. Hmm. And you think it's a it's 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 as much a licensing workaround as anything? I mean, it's part of it. The the it's it's super powerful functionally to say that I am going to I have my hypervisor control plane for my networking, which is a pretty good abstraction. But remember, VMware ESXi is licensed per core count. So if I have a bunch of Xeon processors out in the telco edge, and I have to license VMware via those Xeon cores, that's really expensive. VMware needed a, the telco space, VM, Pat has been talking telco for the past five years and VMware has not penetrated the telco space. A big portion of that is cost and other drivers such as telcos really want and prefer open source versus closed source systems, but uh, pricing and licensing has, has been a very big hurdle or VMware right. entering telco. Right. right, right, right. Well, I mean, the other thing is this, that the ARM processors become much more mature and much more competitive in the in that in the in the CPU space than it once was. Or, or I, 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 there's a whole. You know, I wrote this. I wrote a blog post last week or the week before, and hardware innovation speeding up, and it's it's. There are multiple facets of that, but one was that, you know, Moore's law and the Denard scaling is kind of slowing down or, or Denard scaling is stopped almost, but Moore's law is slowing down. So whereas before they could put more and more technology and more and more transistors and more and more instruction complexity into the x86, that advantage is slowly slipping away. Well, they're, they're accommodating for that, Ray, by, by multiplying the number of cores. Yeah, I mean, and that's okay, but but it doesn't increase the functionality or the speed of that core, you know. Yeah, Ray, we have that one, we have that one podcast where the you know the vendor tempted the death of x86 in general. I think we're we're a few decades away from the death oh, of x86, yeah, yeah, but yeah. the 
the whole system on a chip approach, that vertical integration, what we're seeing on the client side with the Mac M1 and what they're able to do performance wise for code optimized for ARM uh, and that system on the chip design. I have a monster 16 inch MacBook Pro with an i9 processor, 16 gig of RAM. And the M1 for video editing in Final Cut, Final Cut comes close in performance to my i9 processor uh yeah Werner 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 was on stage at AWS reInvent doing his keynote he talked about Gaviton which is AWS's ARM alternative and how the power you know you're saving 40 percent on power uh cost uh per per watt etc uh, for performance for optimized code. However, he also said that it was an investment. If uh, your company was looking to leverage ARM and Gaviton, that it was a co-investment with AWS because non-optimized code, as you can imagine, is pretty slow. Uh, uh, Premiere uh, running and encoding something in Premiere, which is a video editing suite, Take well, well, I saw an example how it took an hour and thirty minutes on an M1 versus twenty minutes on a i i9 or i7. Uh, so you get the complete opposite for code that's not optimized, and there's an awful lot of not optimized code. Right, that's interesting. I always thought that was a compiler function kind of thing that you just get a compiler that would optimize for the processor and stuff. But it's, there's more to it than that, apparently. Apparently, but if you're you know, if you're programming in Go and or Python and some of these higher abstracted languages, there's really not a reason not to go with, uh, especially if you're not talking about needing telemetry data or specialized I.O. where you're programming the entire distributed system. You're only programming at the, you know, for the compute layer where you know, it's kind of a no-brainer. If I'm going to write Go or if I'm going to write Python, my Python is going to compile uh, just as well on ARM as it would on uh, on x86. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Interesting. Yeah, and so even ARM's gotten more multiple cores per per system and stuff like that. It's it's uh, it's pretty impressive what they can do with ARM, and I think to some extent the smart NICs and and the DPUs are also taking advantage of the ARM processors to put, you know, generic computation out there. You could run sort of container workloads on there almost. Uh, the other guys that were doing that sort of thing was this computational storage. And we talked to them, oh, God, a year or two back. Uh, but uh, even the Flash Memory Summit this year, they, they started talking some more about how computational storage is taking off. But my, you know, my view, and I'm not sure whether this is the case or not, is they probably have an ARM processor sitting on the SSD, doing the compression and deduplication and encryption of the, of the data. Unique task that that it serves better. The the GP traditionally GPU type functions. Right, right. It's a similar concept to GPU, where you have. You have an acceleration, uh, and, and the GPU sense has got you know single instruction set, but multiple data streams. Whereas in the whereas in the uh, you know smart NICs or you know computational storage, they've got special purpose hardware sitting there doing things like 
for the smart NICs, I, I assume it's, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's data transfer byte by byte, um, yeah, encoding and, and decoding and deframing and reframing. And, and, uh, I think a lot of it has the, the, the more like the deduplication and compression factors become a part of that, uh, particularly when that NIC is dedicated towards storage or, or WAN infrastructure. Um, deduplication becomes a really big function. I think we're going to see devices like uh, R Riverbed and, uh, and F5 and companies like this start to incorporate these kinds of uh, algorithms into... For their WAN optimization? Uh, uh, no, the network functionality. Oh, I see. Huh. Yeah, so we we're already seeing that. So, and again, AWS is doing a lot of this. Uh, you know, you're talking about WAN acceleration, compression, security, uh, uh, protocol uh, optimization. So, if we go one step deeper into WAN optimization, if I can process a packet and if I can make a decision on a packet's direction at the smart NIC instead of sending that to the Xeon core, even if I'm taking advantage of DPDK, I'm going to see advantages in speed. Uh, one of the things I like to look at is uh, uh, video encoding. If I can, if I can, if I make the request for the bits off of the disk and I can, and at the processor, I can recognize, oh, I know that that's video. The CPU got a request to re-encode this video for an iPhone screen instead of an iPad screen, instead of sending that workload to the CPU, CPU to do the work, I'm doing the work at the smart NIC. That is an incredible amount of optimization and efficiency from, from overall state right. And, and then, Ray, you know, we talked about computational storage. What happens if that request never even hits the, the node, if it's done at the at the storage if the if the ssd has this cheap to no to to free uh arm core that can do this work at the ssd why not yeah yeah exactly exactly and yeah so uh so jim jim handy which was on our flash memory summit wrap up talked about you know how some of the cloud um providers are starting to adopt computational storage just to do data compression out for it which is yet another problem. I mean, you do, 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 do data compression, you have to bring the data bytes into the storage, into RAM, into the computer, and do you know it's 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 a computational intensive activity. If you can do that all outboard, why not? I mean, obviously it's the cost of doing it, but you know there's an advantage speed wise to doing it as well. It's amazing what what they can do with ARM these days. Yeah, I think it's just amazing to challenge. You know, we talked about this in the pre-show a little bit that Intel, AMD, x86 world has never been challenged like this in any significance. Probably in my, probably in, the, in, in just the 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 life of x86 as the core of compute in the data center. The only real challenge was another Intel technology, Itanium 
which well power power pc would be the ibm version of you know uh, yeah yeah. some power pc so there is some uh uh there there's actually a bit of uh aix running on power and actually running sap hana of all things uh in data centers but again not a serious challenge to the juggernaut that's x86 I think I think to some extent Power and Solaris and those kind of guys they, and even HP had always gone down a proprietary route. Um, lately, you know, IBM has opened up Power PC to be an open power kind of solution. ARM, to some extent, anybody can man- anybody can license the IP and manufacture it. I mean, it's it it was been open since the 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 get go from a hardware perspective, I guess. So yeah, it's uh, it's taken a while, and it's taken sort of this more slowdown and Denard scaling, you know, ceasing to exist, and and you know, it's 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 what's coming back is hardware design as a as a as a uh, is becoming an advantage again. It was hadn't been an advantage for a long time because you know the the CPU. You touched this on a recent podcast. Right, you were you were talking about how uh, software is going to consume the world. Yeah, that was always the case, you know. Well, only only the last ten years or so. But what really is is true is it's going to be some combination thereof, and and the hardware needs to be in place to support the the software to do the job, and and vice versa. Um, so yeah, I don't think we're out of the hardware game yet. That's I don't think for we'll sure. ever be out of the hardware. If anything, it's accelerating. I mean, you could see that in GPUs. The, you know, the NVIDIA GPUs are coming out faster and stronger and quicker. Uh, a whole AI neuromorphic or even AI just normal accelerators. Uh, the TPU and and Cerebrus and and uh, the GraphCore and those kind of guys are are just are just you know. They're just loading up this hardware functionality onto these chips and 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 taking off. There's no stopping it, as far as I can tell. They've, I don't know. I, you know, obviously it takes takes a certain amount of volume to make a business out of these things, right? And I'm sure that there's that challenge. And to to create a to create a processor die set, uh, it's no trivial feat, right? They've been doing it for decades and decades, but it, it seems to me that when um, when creating something completely brand new, uh, and and to create a die for that uh, for that proc to actually function, aside from testing alone, you've got to create a fabrication facility. I mean, yeah, we're talking but the about a lot facilities of facilities now are available. You can you can hire a fab. Uh, I'm sure it costs millions of dollars, but it's not like you have to buy and create a whole fab in billions of dollars. It's, it's not trivial. I know, but I wrote a blog post a couple got a couple months back about a company. It was a fab in in uh, in Arizona, I think, that was offering free chip development. It was it wasn't state of the art, you know, eight nanometer technology. It was one hundred thirty nanometer technology. But if you if you followed their tool chain and stuff like that, they they would manufacture your your ASICs for you. You know, like a, an account of fifty or something. If you wanted more, you had to pay for it. And and Google Google was somehow supporting this this technology, 
with uh, with the software tool chain and stuff. It was pretty impressive. But again, it wasn't state of the art technology. But you know, you can hire global foundries or Samsung or something like that if if you've got the money. <laughs> They'll do it, and it's state-of-the-art technology. It's 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 beyond the Intel node, as far as I can tell. Yeah, I don't know if they announced it or if they if it was handed to, but Microsoft is designing their own ARM processor. Uh, it is definitely a good business to get into. I don't want to uh, slight the IDMs of the world. Uh, these integrated chip manufacturers like Intel. Intel, and I think the industry has gotten to the point that we're kind of sliding Intel. They've had some slips up, slip ups going from 14 to 10 and now 10 to 7 nanometers. Uh, these guys are some of the smartest people in the, in the world. Uh, what they, what they've able, the fact that they're still able to stay competitive with 10 nanometer processes uh off of amd7 just shows to you once they get their act together and they get to seven we're going to have fun in processors for years to come where we have amd intel nvidia apple all leapfrogging one others this this kind of reminds me a little bit of the race to uh, gigahertz if you guys can remember that from uh, you know 2000s from yeah we're all older than you keith (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you're older than me, but that well, that, that was that a snapshot far. in time that we all were. Yeah, 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 yeah. we were all active then. All right, so we we kind of killed the processor off here. Uh, so the other big story of late has been a security exposure. I don't know who wants to start in that space, but uh, there's been a, a serious, serious hack of the of the government infrastructure here. Keith, maybe you could kind of summarize what what's going on there. So this is this, uh, it's not a man in the middle. It's this infamous supply chain hack that we all been worried about. The super micro hack where they put a chip inside of the uh, baseband of the of the board that no one could find. and was probably just bad reporting. Uh, but what actually happened was that this happened in software. If you're very relying on getting dat file updates, uh, system updates, software updates from your trusted vendors, uh, what appears to have been Russia, by all indications, uh, infiltrated SolarWinds to the point that they could inject their own code in a signed Windows DLL for their Orion network management tool that's used by evidently a lot of people because the update went out to 18,000 organizations. Uh, and I think that's 425 uh, and Orion is used in 425 of the, uh, S yeah, yeah. The, uh, uh, fortune 500, uh, they then used a additional attack, which was based off of, uh, a trusted security token to uh, mimic a administrator, create a local accounts on systems and basically own the network of the companies they chose, the companies and the agencies they cl- chose to infiltrate. Nasty hack. Yeah. So when you say supply chain for a software vendor, what do you, th- I mean, I, you know, a lot of these guys use a lot of open source and things of that nature. 
but you know so they would might have some ip from a from a special uh software vendor that does something specific to that and they somehow got into that vendor's software environment and were able to inject their own code yeah so if you think about just the cicd process the what from what i'm hearing is that somehow the intruders injected themselves into SolarWinds CI/CD process and and w- injected code into that workflow. So the update that went out in March uh, was, a, just, was a perfectly cryptographically signed update, and it was all valid. It came from SolarWinds and everything, but it happened to have some bad code in it or some it, hack yep, code. The hack code and and you know to add insult to injury. Uh, Maybe some virus scanners might have caught the malicious malicious a- activity, but SolarWinds uh, uh, implementation details asked not to uh, not to scan that directory. So even if the virus, even if your virus software was smart enough, yeah. would not see it, and then they did not actually start the the. It was set up as an exclusion. I I did not know that. Yeah, it was set up as an a, a, a scan exclusion list. Then on top of that, the malicious activity didn't start until a few weeks after the update. So it would be hard to trace back, you know, like, well, where did this come from? I see SolarWinds is doing something that it normally sh- wouldn't or shouldn't do. It was it's very subtle and actually extremely genius. I, I was I was blown away reading the details of it on the FireEye side. Well, I mean, and, and, you know, the challenge is it's just like the hardware space. It's it's gotten to the point where, you know, our processes to develop these systems have gotten so automated anymore and, and, and need to be. I mean, these guys are, you know, some of these guys are rolling updates every day to to their to their deployments. And SaaS is even worse. I mean, this is this is on prem software. Right. But I mean, the 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 SaaS solutions uh, updates roll out extremely frequently yeah the i i just rolled out a new website and i it took me it took us three and a half months to roll out a new website so i couldn't i can't imagine the complexity of well i can't imagine the complexity of getting to the point where you're doing updates every day it, it takes automation and that automation if you're not if you're not auditing your practices and your access, et cetera, around automation, it can get scary. So this distributed, going back to the first story, COVID-19 and this forced work from home environment that we're in and the bigger attack surface, what do you guys think about the bigger attack surface that we have now that everyone is remote? So now that the corporate data is sort of, is sort of, is sort of proliferated out to the field, uh, home computers and laptops and stuff like that, and, and the cloud and stuff in order to be able to access. Yeah, it's uh, it's gotten to be a larger exploit surface. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, before letting the kid poke around on websites on my computer was one thing. But now letting them poke around on websites on my computer, and now that you know, the we talk about the advantages of VDI and remote work, BYOD, but I'm sure there's a bunch of scared CIOs are out there like, wait, hold on, some random Android phone or tablet is going to connect to my network and use my mission-critical apps? 
Yeah, it's a little scary. And and the truth is, it's not just maintaining a powerful firewall and, and controlling the traffic in and out of your actual network. It's far more uh, robust than that, as, as this spoofed uh, DLL that you were just talking about is a perfect example that, you know, no, uh, well, I can't say none, but, but certainly we know of only one uh, virus uh, software that has come out and said we could have seen that activity should it have passed through our our um our gates had it not been excluded and all that stuff yeah had it not been ex- right um but if it's every piece of data that gets transmitted through uh, a vdi session or a vpn session uh, the the quality of your your scanning software has to be so robust as well as so powerful so as not to drag the network or the wide area network traffic to a halt while somebody is doing these things. It, it really draws itself in a, in a very um, strong image against what traditional VPNs or, or, or firewalls did. Uh, and we Doesn't really need to also um, seem to show that perhaps, you know, the VMware approach where they, they, they effectively create a, a virtualized desktop on your desktop and control access and control security seems to be a, 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 a good way to go in these times of uh, security issues and, and having corporate data be all over the world and stuff like that. Yeah, that's that's a layer. And the VMware security guys hate when I talk about VM escape, but we've seen instances of VM escape now. So especially on the desktop, the the or what we're running on the desktop is not nearly as robust as what we're running in the data center. What do you mean by VM escape, Keith? So the VM escape is when you escape, when you, um, when you, you know, so in theory, if I have a uh, isolated OS running inside of a VM and, and abstracted hardware, virtualized hardware on my PC, in theory, I should be able to download malware and whatever, just as long as my security settings are tight on the hypervisor. I should be fine. I should be able to do all the testing that I want. There, the I can't the uh, a piece of malware can't escape and infect the larger machine. Well, a couple of years ago that happened. The especially on uh, on workstation that the malware could escape the VM and 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 compromise the uh, bigger machine. The bigger machine via like a floppy, uh, a virtual floppy. Right. Right. <laughs> At the same time, Keith, it also traversed the other direction. So from the infected machine, somehow that infestation was able to traverse into the VM that happened to be a VDI instance on the corporate network, at which point you had a, um, you had a transaction that took place crossing the lines of physical to virtual and then somehow traversed into the the corporate network. Yep, that's why now I now on my desk right now is a good old fashioned pencil and paper. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, I can't I, read I used, anything that I've written in it, but yeah, it's, it's yeah, that's, that's a challenge. Yeah, I I do that too, Keith. I'm still in that in that mode of operation as well. Well, this has been great, folks. Um, any last items you'd like to discuss before we leave? Sorry, Ray, I got nothing for you. No, I'm good. I think I think we beat up 2020 pretty uh, almost as bad as 2020 beat me up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think. I think there's a lot of potential in what transpired in 2020. I, obviously, the security stuff is going to take some time for us to understand and, and try to resolve <laughs> and make make better. But at least we know about it now and we can start thinking about what it's going to take to get us there. And this whole COVID thing, you know, the digital transformation that occurred as a part of that, I think is is good for society. I just... You know, it's just a question of making sure everybody's got got an equal shot at it. And uh, the ARM thing, I think any any competi- comp- competitiveness in the, in the CPU space is is good for all. So, yeah, I think so. All right, gents, that's it for now. Bye, Matt. Bye, Keith. Bye, Ray. Bye, Ray. And until Bye, next Keith. time. Bye, Matt. Thanks, guys. Bye, bye. Mm-hmm.